before you in Jesus name. And Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come to hear and to study your word. We also thank you, Lord, for the rich history of which we are a part of. And God, I pray that as we look through the history of the Reformation, that we would see just how blessed we are to be living in the time that we are living in today. And God, that we would have a greater appreciation for the men and the women that you used before us. And I pray, God, that we would cling tighter to our word, that we would proclaim with more boldness the gospel. And Father, that we would be even more passionate for your glory. We thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me say to you before I begin, and this has come out of a discussion that I've had from a few people, one of them from uh, Redeemer, another one from Sovereign Grace, and that is this, that as we learn history, as we learn theology, as we learn doctrine, one of the things that I'm praying for your life is that your heart will be inflamed for God. Your heart would be ignited for God, that you're not just learning theology, but that you're learning theology and that it's leading you to doxology, that it's leading you to worship God, that it's leading you to praise God, that it's giving you a greater passion to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a greater fire. Amen. So if you're coming and you're saying it feels like I'm in school, praise God. I'm glad that it feels like you're in school. But if it's not leading you closer to God, then there's something wrong. It's head knowledge. There's mental ascent without a heart change. And I'm praying that as you hear these truths, that your heart is ignited for Christ. Amen. So as we get into the history of the Reformation, one of the things that I'm sure that you're maybe going through your minds is, why do I need to know about the Reformation? Some of the kids that are sitting here in the front row are thinking, I've got things going on at school. What do I care about a reformation about? Some of you may be thinking, I've got problems on my job. What do I care about a reformation? And one of the things I think as I was beginning to study through this very, very deep subject is that it's important for us to understand the past so that we don't make the same mistakes in the future. Amen. I believe it's also important for us to know about the history of the Reformation because it answers questions like this. And everybody look at me real quick. Don't look there. We'll get to all that. And you can't really see it, actually. Why am I not a Roman Catholic right now? Why am I not right now sitting in a Roman Catholic church? Actually, you probably wouldn't be sitting in a Roman Catholic church on a Wednesday. But why am I not sitting in a Roman Catholic church right now? What does the word Protestant mean? Whether or not you know this, you're a Protestant. <laughs> okay? Amen? Okay, well, you'll, you'll figure that out hopefully tonight, or at least through this series. Where did I get my Bible from? Some of you do bring your Bible. Some of you have it on your phone. Some of you don't have a Bible. But where did I get this Bible from? How is it that I have my own personal Bible? Raise your hand if you have more than one Bible. Do you realize how rare you would be? Matter of fact, you would not even exist in the time that we're going to talk about tonight. Why am I free to worship any way that I choose? Why is it that I can attend any church that I choose? All of these questions and more, they're all answered during the Reformation. So when I began to study this subject uh, last year, I learned something 
um, that I continually learned as I get deeper into Reformed theology, and that is this. I'm often biting off more than I can chew, more than I can chew when it comes to what I teach. This is a subject that is so deep, that is so rich. There are so many people, so many players involved, especially in the Reformation, that it could literally take us five to ten years to, to do justice to every single one of the subjects and people and players involved in the Reformation. But today we're going to start in Geneva. This is Geneva, Switzerland. You can barely see that because we're going to fix our screen. But this is a park in the middle of Geneva, Switzerland. And this park has a wall. The wall is called Reformation Wall. That person you can see, if you look at the picture in real time, or at least a real picture, that person is a lot smaller than they actually look compared to that wall. On that wall, we have people of the Reformation or heroes of the Reformation. People like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, John Knox, and many more. <clears throat> On that wall, there's an inscription that says this. Go ahead and turn to the next slide. And you can see it there slightly. It says, Post Tenebras Lux, which is translated, After Darkness, Light. After darkness, light. If you guys have us on Facebook, you've seen me post that before. Post Tenebras Luke's. After darkness, light. Let me ask you a question. You can answer it in your mind. Why was there a reformation? Why was there a need for a reformation? And what does that inscription mean? After darkness, light. What was the darkness? And what was the light? Tonight, I would like to give you a picture into that darkness that they're speaking of. The darkness of the 14th and 15th century, of which this inscription is referring to. What did the world look like in the 14th and 15th century? Now, if you hate history, you're going to really hate tonight. If you love history, you're going to love tonight, okay? But if you're a Christian, you should love it all. Amen? Okay. What were the conditions like in that world? What was the church like in that world? What was happening during that time? For starters, raise your hand if you've ever heard of something called the Renaissance. Praise God. If you know anything about the Renaissance, it started pretty much in Italy, and then it spread throughout the rest of Europe. And it brought a tremendous amount of change to the arts to education, to science, and the way that people were thinking, the Renaissance. There were discoveries made in the fields of astronomy, the fields of navigation, which would give people better understanding about the world. For example, during this time, it won't be very long before a man by the name of Magellan, anybody heard of Magellan? Before a man by the name of Magellan travels across the entire world. What was he doing that for? He was setting out to prove that the world was not flat, but that it was round. They believe that if you if you sailed to the edge of the horizon, you would fall off and fall into the deep space. Magellan, he worked up enough courage and enough support to be able to go out and disprove that. And he ended up sailing around the world. 
There was another man by the name of Columbus who would set out to discover a new world as he was looking for India. Instead of going to India, he goes to a continent that was already inhabited by people and says, look what I discovered. And we we honor him today for some reason. When Constantinople fell in 1453, fugitives fled to the West and brought with them Greek texts by authors such as Homer and Plato and Cicero. This led to a rise in what is known as Platonic, from Plato, Platonic thought, which led to people being more individualistic in their attitude. And it also created two things, an understanding of rhetoric and logic. This began to spread throughout the world. Up until this time, it was only really in Greece. And now it begins to spread all throughout Europe. Now, you may be wondering, okay, what does all this have to do with the Reformation? Something's happening. The world is beginning to change, and it's having an impact right now, or at that time, on the church. People began to look at the church, which was the ultimate power at that time, and they began to question things. The platonic thought, the, the, the individualistic thought, the, the ideas of rhetoric and reason started to, to creep into the church. And they started to question what the church does and why the church does these things. You must understand, you today are allowed to question anything that I do. You can disagree with me. You can leave the church. You could call me a heretic. You could cuss me out. You could do whatever you want to do. And there'll be but no penalty on your life. But during this time. If you question the church, if you spoke out against its leaders, especially the pope, you would die. During the the Council of Constance, which is in 1414, between 1414 and 1418, and the Council of Basel, a debate began within the church. And they began to discuss problems that were going on within the church. People are questioning what we're doing. Let's meet together and find out if we're doing anything wrong. And by having these discussions, there was there were agreements that there needed to be some type of reform in the church, but very little change within the church. Why? Because if the church changed anything, then the church would have to acknowledge she is not perfect. In addition to this, people's attitudes were becoming more radical because of the Renaissance. For example, such men as Leonardo da Vinci. You ever heard of him? Yes. He developed or was involved in developing modern science that were challenging traditional beliefs about the world. This led to a growth in knowledge. And this knowledge, this growth of knowledge, it was uncontrolled by the church. Now, when I speak of the church, I'm speaking about the Roman Catholic Church. Now, as this growth of knowledge begins to spread, the church is trying to control what knowledge gets out. Think about this. What if I controlled everything that you read, everything that you watched, everything that you did and everywhere that you went? That is the condition of the 14th, 15th and even earlier centuries. The Pope was being challenged. There was another person by the name of uh, Copernicus. You guys ever heard of Copernicus? Copernicus challenged that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the universe. We now know that the sun is the center of the universe and we revolve around the sun. 
at this time, they believed, especially being taught by the church, the church was teaching that the earth was the center and everything revolved around the earth. Copernicus was threatened with by death because of his because of his teachings. This was seen as heretical and his life was threatened. Many new brave thoughts were arriving at this time, and the, 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 the challenge was also being pointed toward the Bible. The Bible was being challenged. There was a man by the name of, and here's a name, if you don't remember any of the names tonight, at least remember this one, Johannes Gutenberg. Anybody ever heard of Johannes Gutenberg? If you've never heard of Johannes Gutenberg, around 1450, he developed a way of using printing blocks to produce books rather than copying them by hand. This was known as the printing press. It is the first copy machine. This was, and I believe Time Magazine calls this, one of the top three greatest inventions ever invented. Because it was, this printing press now allowed copies of papers to be copied, mass produced and spread to the masses. Before this, there was only handwritten copies and they were very few. When Gutenberg developed this printing press, now everyone had access to what was only very limited at the time. Which meant, and we'll get to this in a little bit, that the Bible was distributed now to people who never had a Bible in their hand. Monks would work tirelessly to copy pages and to also draw illustrations that would uh, support what they were writing on those pages. And they would do this for, for years. And Gutenberg's printing press changed all those things. Now, we will later talk about how, though the printing press helped to push the ideas of Luther and Calvin and William Tyndale, but where was the darkness? Let's start with this. The absence of light. Hosea, the Bible says in Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And this was exactly the case in the 14th century. Here's an interesting fact. Today, you can walk up to a number of people on the street and have a conversation with them about the Bible. And they might even have a Bible in their back pocket. Not only that, but they have probably read the Bible and at least have an understanding of what you're saying concerning the Bible. But imagine a world in which the common person not only has never read the Bible, but the common person has not even seen the Bible. That's the world that these people were living in. Not only have I never read the Bible, but I've never even seen a Bible. And the only Bible that they heard was being taught to them in Latin by the priest, and they didn't even know Latin. Can you imagine that? If I came up and and preached to you in German every Sunday, and you're required to be in church, or else you'll be fined and put in jail. Matter of fact, at this time, it is estimated that one in every 10,000 people could, could... One in every 10,000 people could read and write. One out of 10,000 people could read and write. So even if they did have a Bible, they couldn't read it. The word of God, as you read today and as you share today, as that the word of God that is in your lap, that is welcomed across the world. Imagine a world where it is not welcomed, where The powers that be do not want you to have the Bible in your hand. 
Because you might start to think for yourself and read for yourself. Therefore, you would have, they would have or lose control over what you think and what you believe. This was going on from about 500 A.D. to at least the 14th and maybe even the 16th century. That is 700 years at least of darkness. Because people did not have access to the word of God, they made up their own superstitions. And they lived in fear of the superstitions that they've made up or the superstitions that the church had told them that they believed. The priests, the monks, and the friars, they kept people in spiritual darkness. But why did they do that? If truth be told, it was because they themselves were also walking in darkness and didn't know what they believed as well. Political power in the church from the 4th, 5th, all the way to the 17th century, and this could be debated the 17th century, the Roman Catholic Church ruled the world. That's a long time. Bishops were appointed by the Pope to rule in all the countries. People, people often looked to the bishop as their Lord and their master. Bishops, and we'll get to this, bishops basically were like governors of a town. And they were seen as the Lord and master of every single person there. People would look to the Pope and not to the king for instruction. The Pope was seen as more important than the king because the Pope's power was seen to be given to him by God, where the king's power was given to him by men. So they obeyed the Pope. And here's why. The Pope held within his hands the power to excommunicate you from the church. That meant if people opposed the Pope, he could cut them off from the church. And if you're not belonging to the church, when you die, you go to hell forever. So the people were afraid of the, the eternal punishment from the Pope rather than the temporal punishment from the king. They were more worried about if the pope cuts me off, I go to hell forever, forever. If the king cuts me off, I just die here. Does that make sense? According to the Roman Catholic Church, the pope's power stemmed from God. They take this idea from Matthew chapter 16, verse number 18, which says this. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Rome takes this to mean that Peter was initiated by Christ as the very first pope. And since then, there has been what is known as apostolic succession, meaning that every single successor of Peter and Peter's successor and, and that person's successor, that those were the lineage or that is the lineage of the pope. The pope that we have today is seen to be following in the lineage of Peter or a successor of Peter. They believed that the Pope was appointed to, by God to make sure that the Bible was followed, that the Pope's authority was sovereign from God. But in reality, the Pope was really the person that gave people jobs. So they submitted to him. People wanted to become bishops because if they became a bishop over a country or over a land, they've got to collect taxes. And if they collected taxes, they would get rich. So they would pay the pope so that the pope would appoint them as a bishop over a town. This is how corrupt 
the church was, is, the church was, is at that time and this time. Don't think for a second that the, 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 the sliding of money from hand to hand is still not going on in the Roman Catholic Church. They don't rule that area for nothing and by nothing. It was all about money and power. Interesting side note, during the 15th century, there were wars over who was going to be the pope. The papacy moved from Rome to France. And when it moved from Rome to France, it was called the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. But the interesting thing was that when the papacy moved from Rome to France, a new pope stepped up in Rome and said, I'll be the pope. But the pope in France says, but I'm still the pope. So they got together a council and they decided, let's make a new pope. And so they made a new pope. But the pope in Rome says, I'm still the pope. And the pope in France says, but I'm still the pope. And the new pope says, but I just got elected as the pope. So there was three popes at one time, all refusing to recant their position as pope. And if you don't know what the word pope means, it means papa or holy father. When you call the Pope the Pope today, when you, like Rick Warren, say our Pope, you're calling him Holy Father, our Father. He's not our Pope. We have one Father, Jesus Christ. Amen? <clears throat> the clergy at this time, the clergy was wealthy and they were ambitious. They cared nothing for the people. Now, listen, when I talk about Looking to the past so that we don't make the same mistakes in the future. I want you to try to catch the similarities from that time to this time, especially as I get into the clergy. Now, we've already talked a little bit about the pope and the bishops, the clergy. They didn't care about the people. They cared nothing for the people. The clergy is given the name clergy so that they could work in the church. They were they were priests. They were bishops who controlled that region. They were cardinals. They were popes, obviously, monks and nuns who lived in monasteries and convents. And the higher ranks of the church <clears throat> made up, were made up of noble families. So if you came from a rich family, you would be placed in a high position so that the money can continue to stay at the top and the poor people can continue to stay at the bottom. Bishops were very powerful. Again, they controlled taxes. They told the peasants what to do. They controlled large areas of land. And there would be disputes over who would be the bishop of a certain land so that the people could get money. In some countries, such as France, the king had the right to appoint bishops, and he would sell the title of bishop to the highest bidder. That still happens today. Trust me, when it comes to judicial judges, mayors, believe me, money plays a huge part in all of those things. In other countries, the Pope, the Pope, the Pope, the Pope appointed bishops, and he would often appoint his allies, so that if there was any argument, he would have no problem with the person uh, that he had put in power because they were his friends. Many of the priests, they would conduct church services in more than one village. They were paid very little, but they controlled that church. The more churches that you that you pastored, the more money that you would get. So they were hungry to pastor many churches so that they could have more money. 
They had to conduct services in Latin and read the Bible in Latin. And often they couldn't read it. They just memorized what they had been told. The priests were responsible for marriages, funerals, baptisms, and so on. Here's one of the things that I want to move on to. And this is a big deal when it comes to making money. Let's go to the next page. Indulgences. Now, if you were here for our protest against Rome, when we began to speak about um, purgatory and Mary and the Pope and all those things, I mentioned indulgences. Hopefully you didn't forget those things, but this will be a good reminder if you did. An indulgence. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. So Rome taught that Jesus did so many good deeds that there was a treasury where the excess of his good deeds could be placed. Meaning this, he did so many good things that he had extra good things to spare. So the extra good things that they had to spare were placed in a box, a spiritual box that nobody could see. The box was called the treasury of merit. Jesus did enough good things to be accepted by God that all the extra good things got placed into a box called the treasury of merit. Mary also lived the perfect life, according to Rome. And she also did so many good things that her extra good deeds got placed in that same treasury of merit as Jesus. The disciples also did so many good things and the saints that their deeds got placed into the treasury of merit. Here's where the indulgence comes in. That your life, because you are a sinner is not perfect. It looks nothing like the life of the disciples. It looks nothing like the life of Jesus. You owe a lot of good deeds. So what you can do is you can buy deeds from the treasury of merit called indulgences. You can take time off of your time in purgatory by by purchasing indulgences indulgences means indulge take from the excess of merits and add them to your imperfect life so that you can take time off of your time in purgatory how much time do you want to spend in purgatory kids do you want to spend a thousand years in purgatory then please it's only a hundred dollars i'll sell you an indulgence it'll take at least a thousand days off of your time in purgatory Well, they don't have a Bible. They don't know what to believe. All they know is what these people who they are trusting have the Bible, know the Bible, love God, know God. All they know is what they're telling them. So, of course, they're going to believe what they say. They would buy these indulgences. There was a, uh, in a debate between James White and a Catholic apologist. The Catholic apologist, this is in this day, this era. The Catholic apologist was asked, Could I pay my way out of hell? Guess what he said? You either pay now or you're going to pay later. In essence, he's saying, yes, you can pay your way out of hell, out of purgatory. You've got to pay sometime. If you don't pay now, then you're going to pay later. Rome teaches that if a sinner is forgiven of his sins... He is absolved from eternal punishment, but he still has to perform what is known as satisfacio 
or satisfaction in purgatory. You may be forgiven of your sin, but you didn't live a perfect life. And in order for God to be satisfied with you, you have to pay in purgatory, which means you may have to do a certain amount of penance in purgatory. You may have to serve a certain amount of time in purgatory before finally God says, "Okay, you've done enough. You have earned your way into heaven. Let me tell you this. Rome has not changed their stance. Rome has not come out and says, no, we don't believe that. This is still the teaching of Rome. So when anybody asks you, it's not that big of a difference, really? So when Christ said in John chapter 19, verse number 30, it is finished. He was lying. Because you have to go into purgatory and finish what he didn't finish. Are you following me? An indulgence was a purchase of good deed from the treasury of merit. This is what an indulgence looks like. Did I have it? Do I have it up there? Let's. There it is. That's an indulgence. This is what I didn't get to show you guys last time. It's a piece of paper. And it is signed and affirmed by the pope. You would be buried with this indulgence. Why? Because when you die, you're going to take this document to Peter, who's standing. I'm telling you, this is what the church taught, who's standing at the gate and he is going to inspect you. And if you have not done enough, you will go to purgatory and he will give you your sentence. But if you've got this paper, this indulgence, Peter's going to say, oh, wait a minute. What? You got an indulgence? A $10,000, wow, $10,000 indulgence. Wow. And it's signed by the Pope, my successor, the Vicar of Christ, which is the representation of Christ here on earth. The Holy Spirit's not. It's the Pope. Your sins are satisfied. Enter into heaven. They would be buried with that paper with the understanding that when I die, I'm going to take this to Peter and Peter's going to see this and I'm going to be okay. This is the darkness that we're talking about. There was a man by the name of, keep going. <clears throat> keep going one more. This man, Johannes Tetzel. He was the most popular seller of indulgences. He would go into the marketplace and he, especially he was from Germany, and he would sell these indulgences, these parchment pieces of paper like selling vegetables. Who wants one? Who wants one? He was later, it was later approved by the Pope that not only could you purchase indulgences for yourself, but think about this moneymaker. You could purchase indulgences for people who have already died. And here was Tetzel's wonderful pitch. Patrick, how long will your mother suffer in purgatory? How long will you let her suffer there? How long has she been there? Patrick, don't you know that with this indulgence, you can release her from purgatory? Patrick, buy it today. And people were buying these things. People were give, giving in to this, this, this scam. And his great saying was, every time a coin in the, in the can rings, a soul from purgatory springs. 
Would you like to live in this darkness? And see, guys, when, when we talk about knowing truth, when we talk about spreading this truth, we have been given the freedom now to do so. You're not bound by some of these crazy. And, and this, this is not a fairy tale. This actually happened. This is what we come out of. So be diligent. Be bold in studying and pursuing and, and preaching these truths because there was a time of darkness where you didn't have, have them looking on every single person's lap besides the kids. They got Bibles in your hands. You can look at that and say, no, the word of God doesn't say anything about that. Relics were another thing. People would travel far and wide to attain relics. Now, listen to the, the similarities. These relics <clears throat> that people would travel to go pursue and get were things such as a piece of Christ's cross. Christ's blood in a bottle. Some nails from the cross. And also some of the saints' bones. And they were widespread in use in the church during the Middle Ages and Dark Ages. People would travel all around the country looking for these relics. And then they would bribe, or not bribe, but they would con people into saying, look at this. This is a, a splinter from the cross of Jesus. They would have it in these little vials. This is a splinter from the cross of Jesus. This can be yours if you just pay $1,000, whatever. And the people were so superstitious that they believed if they owned this, that they wouldn't get sick. That if they own this, then they would be well in their life, that they would be blessed in their life. And it was also a way to show how much I love God, that I've got a piece of his cross. I want you to see the similarities. Because if we don't understand the mistakes of the past, we'll make the same mistakes in the future. What do I mean? How many so-called Christian advertisements have you seen? Where they're peddling the same kind of so-called relics. Water from the Jordan. Miracle spring water. Holy cloths that have been prayed over that they'll send to you if you just. And they don't even ask you for money. But once you call them and once you say yes, you're going to be getting a newsletter every single day. Doing what? Asking you for money. Nothing has changed. The tactics are a little bit different, but nothing. It's all been done before. And yes, I know that many of us have 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 ignorantly, not stupidly, but ignorantly given in to some of these things. Yeah, I've got a I've got a little vial from from the Jordan River. All of these things, it's difficult to understand why people would call the, these ministries. But listen, when people don't have the word of God, they're desperate and they'll try anything. When you don't have access to this, you go to a palm reader. That's how desperate you are. You go to a psychic reader. You don't care. You just need some kind of direction. Where there is no understanding, people will perish. This is what God said in his word in Hosea 4, 6. So when you find yourself, I don't know what I'm doing. Don't disconnect from the word of God, because then you'll find yourself in situations doing things that you normally would not and should not do. <clears throat> People at this time, they believed in goblins. They believed in ghosts. Some of you still believe in goblins and ghosts. 
and they were buying these relics because they believed that they had these relics that would ward off the ghosts and the goblins. Some of you have a cross in your room because you think that cross is going to keep the devils away from your bed. What's wrong with you? You still believe in the boogeyman? Grow up. Seriously, grow up. Understand who you are in Christ. If you think that devils are messing with you, then maybe you need to get saved because devils can't mess with you. Pilgrimages. People would take pilgrimages, journeys to confirm their faith. Sometimes the priest would recommend that they go and take a pilgrimage so that their sins would be forgiven. Oftentimes they would go on their own accord, but they would go out of superstition, believing that if they went to a pilgrimage, meaning if they went to places like Jerusalem, if they went to Canterbury, if they went to Lourdes, if they went to Rome, Italy, they would go to these places thinking that if they got close to a dead saint, the dead saint would forgive them of their sins and also heal them of any sicknesses that they had. Do you think that's weird? Okay, look up trips to to Jerusalem right now. People are still doing that. They're traveling to Jerusalem. They're going to at least five different places where they believe Jesus was born. And they go to every single one of them just in case they miss one of them. And they go and touch that little spot just in case this might be where Jesus was born. Or this might be the spot where Jesus was crucified. Or this might be the spot where Jesus rose from the dead. Going and trying to put their hands on all of these things. And they are serving and worshiping created things rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. You still see the Catholics that are walking down that Roman road on their knees, climbing up those Roman steps on their knees. You'll see it. There's hundreds of them. Everybody's derrieres in their faces as they're going up those stairs. For what? For superstition. Martin Luther is going to be disenfranchised by some of these things. And we'll talk about that later. The darkness. This is the darkness that they were in. More specifically, this is the darkness the church was living in. And tonight I would like to and I'm not going to do it completely, but I'd like to just start you into. The Reformation by introducing to you. A person who was known as the bright and morning star of the Reformation. I'm not speaking about Martin Luther. We will get to him, but Luther is not going to come for at least 200 years. We could be looking at many different figures that could spark the Reformation. I could be talking to you about Augustine, and that's going to take us forever to get to Luther and the Reformation. I could talk to you about Athanasius, which could also take us a long time, but you should know these people, and you should look them up, and you should praise God for them. But we begin in the year 1328. 1328. This was shortly after the death of Marco Polo. At that time, the residing king of England was Edward III, who came into the power, came into power when he was only 15 years old. England was engulfed in many battles. And this is just after the time of a man named William Wallace. You know him as Braveheart. There was wars with Scotland, wars with France that were going on at this time that a man by the name of John Wycliffe was born. And we will look at John Wycliffe the next time that we get together. Amen. Let's pray.